A missionary to Africa tells the story of a blind lady who could not read or write who was reached with the gospel. She came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now she's blind and she can't read or write. She goes to the missionary and asks the missionary for a Bible in French, which the missionary gives her. And she says, now here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to underline John 3.16 in red, and I want you to mark the page so I can find it. And this blind, illiterate lady who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ had a purpose for that Bible. And the missionary was curious. She didn't know what she was going to do with it. So one day she followed her. And this lady made her way to the front door of the school and stationed herself there. And as the children would come out, she would say, do you speak French? And if they said yes, she would say, can you read this for me? And they would read John 3.16, and then from that point, she would share the gospel with them. And not only did a, a, a number of children come to faith, but 24 of the young men who came to faith ended up being pastors in the church. Because a blind, illiterate lady took what she had Dependent upon God's power and used it for his glory. Her confidence was in the word that if she shared the word, God would accomplish his purpose. Her confidence was in the gospel. Amazing, right? We're on the cusp of, some, cusp of something amazing in Acts. In fact, we're on the cusp of something amazing in world history. And that's the missionary journeys of Paul. And we'll see three of them, and they start out small, and they get bigger and bigger as he goes. But in response to the prayer meeting we talked about last week, if you didn't get to listen to that sermon, we focused on fasting a bit. Um, that was from verses 1 to 3. And then coming out of that prayer meeting, we're going to see these missionary journeys begin. And it begins today. The first missionary journey will be from Acts 13.4 to 14.28. Or 26 to 28, near there. End of chapter 14. And this first missionary journey, you know, we look at a map and we see a little circle. We think, well, boy, that didn't take long. About a year and a half on the first missionary journey. In boats, walking, you know, through much difficulty. Seeing people saved and churches planted. They took the gospel seriously. They fasted. They traveled. traveled. They suffered hardship and rejection. But they saw disciples made. And this morning, just the first segment of that missionary journey. So I'm kind of sort of introducing the missionary journeys to you, sort of giving a major um, point of emphasis that we'll see repeated as we go through the missionary journeys. But as we look in Acts chapter 13, 4 to 12, the thing I kind of want to enhance and bring out is that freedom to witness comes through embracing the gospel as the power of God for salvation. Freedom to witness comes through embracing the gospel as the power of God for salvation. And hopefully make that plain as we move through. But first, just let me give you a quick introduction to, to this missionary journey. Um, I think I have a slide that has a map on it uh, where we can show you. I don't know if you'll be able to see this. But, um, eh, better than I thought. 
But this is just the first missionary journey. So Israel's down here, Syria. We have Antioch of Syria, the church in Antioch that's been planted, are sending out intentionally, by God's grace and his working, missionaries. And Barnabas and Paul will make a route all the way around to Derby, and then they will track back through the, the ground they've covered and come back to Antioch and report. And this will take approximately a year and a half. So why, why are they sent out? What is the mission? You know, if we, if we think in our, our, sort of the way we think in the church today, we say, well, they were church planters. They're going out to plant churches. Yes and no. The church, churches are going to be an outflow of the mission of what they're sent out to do. They're sent out by God. You see the very first verse there. Sent out by the Holy Spirit through the church. We talked about that last week. But they're sent out to make disciples. The Great Commission is the mandate for the church. Still is. And that's in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Where Jesus said after his resurrection. Notice he's king now. Then and now. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what we're going to see Paul and Barnabas and others through these missionaries and Paul and Barnabas through this missionary journey doing. They're going out in confidence in Jesus and confidence in his gospel seeking to make disciples of all nations starting from where they are going out to Cyprus and moving on. But the goal is to make disciples, and as disciples are made, local congregations will be born. And we've seen that happen already in Antioch, haven't we? The church that is sending them out is a church that was born because the church was spread by persecution, and people went to Antioch in that region. They're sharing the gospel, and people were converted. We've seen that church organized, and now look at it. It's becoming ascending location. It is the place from which not Jerusalem but Antioch the missionary journeys go out and they go out in obedience to, to and love for the Lord Jesus Christ with the commands he has given them to make disciples and train them up and we'll see them do that. They'll go through and preaching the gospel people will be converted they'll go back through and strengthen and train them up and that that will continue. But let me ask you a question. How are disciples made? How are disciples made? What, what is the power of God for the making of a disciple? Gospel. gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And we're going to see as we focus on, on Paul and what happens in Cyprus, as Corey preaches next, next week, see them in Antioch of Pisidia. How many Antiochs are there? There's a lot. We'll talk about that. <laughs> say 12. Yeah. So it's, it's, there are a lot of those. But you, what you're seeing is an outflow of confidence in the gospel. An outflow of trust in God. They're not making up their own methods. They're just doing what Jesus told them to do. Take the good news about me to all the world. And through that, make disciples. Listen, here's what they didn't do. They didn't go into an area and create a comfortable, enjoyable space for unbelievers. 
They didn't poll the city to see what they wanted in a meeting and shape a meeting to match what unbelievers want. They didn't make sure they had hip, flashy music. Listen, I just want, I want to pause right there just for one second. There's never been a time in the church with as much idolatry over music as we have today. Well, if it's not contemporary, I'm not going. Well, if it's not traditional, I'm not going. After all, you know, Paul sang the hymns in this hymn. <laughs> if it has music, I'm not. If it doesn't have. Well, I need this. I need this. This music to set my mood for the word. You're looking in the wrong place. You think the early church would know anything about that? They met. They prayed, they studied the word, and they sang a song. They had no drums, they had no guitars. They had... I'm not saying, I don't have anything against good music until we start idolizing it. If you think you have to have a certain music so that you can worship, your focus is in the wrong place. You're idolizing music. You put it in a place it should not be. Okay? And I know that's convicting for me to think about in the past. It's convicting for us to think about. I mean, music is the second note anyway. It's not the first note. It's the truth we're singing. That's why we don't sing yeah, 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 no. It should be gospel and theologically rich, the songs that we sing. And that's the major note. And we praise God for the musicians. And, but all this is just to help you sing. I mean, in a lot of places, the singing time, in, in the singing portion of the worship service, and it's not just the singings that worship, it's everything we do in a service. The singing portion becomes a spectator's board where everything's coming at you from the front and everybody's standing out there. That's not worship. It's entertainment. Go to theater. But you see what I'm saying? They didn't go into these areas and think that they had to somehow appeal to the audience so that then the gospel could have effect. What we see them doing is going where people are and sharing the gospel. When we meet on Sunday morning, you know who this is primarily for? God. It's a sacrifice of praise unto God. I heard a story of a pastor one time said somebody came up to him and said, Pastor, I'm not getting much out of the music. He said, that's okay. It's not for you. <laughs> it's for the worship of God and to hear his word and to be changed by his word. It's not an entertainment event. And you know when the evangelism is primarily supposed to take place? I mean, I will preach the gospel. If you bring people, I promise you, bring them. They will hear the gospel. But the evangelism is supposed to primarily take place when we're out there. So they didn't wait and go and con construct this thing and wait till everything was just right and have a grand opening. Find me a grand opening in the New Testament. That's that's worldly. That's business. I mean. You know, if you want to have a, get everything ready and have a Sunday when you announce your layout, I guess it's okay. But the way it's presented sometimes, it's just... Uh, 
But they went about with confidence in the gospel, sharing the gospel. They went into a city and found where the people were gathered and they shared the gospel that Christ lived for us, that he died for us to pay the penalty for our sins, that he was raised from the grave the third day and that you can be saved by trusting in him. Repent and trust Jesus. God commands it. That's what they did. And the church was born. And that all flowed out of confidence in the gospel. They were not trusting in anything else but God to bless his word and convert and grow his people. And I'm not guessing about that. Paul tells us what his confidence was. He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. He said he's not ashamed because the, of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the message that God uses to bring people to faith. Not anything else. But the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. So Paul and Barnabas are going forth sent by the church, thus sent by the Spirit with the gospel. And Christ is with them and Christ is taking the gospel and building His church. And it is thriving. That's what we see in our text today is gospel confidence. Listen, this is another aside, but in, in, in God's providence, Grace Church has a lot of people move through. When you go to another area, don't go looking for the flash to determine what church you join. Go looking for the word. Go looking for the gospel. And join there. For Christ is loved and is being... People are faithful to him and his word is central and his word is going forth and his church is being built. But that's what we see happening today. They're making disciples. They're taking, they're going forth in confidence in the gospel and God is using them to build the church. So that's what, as we see Paul and Barnabas and others go through these varying cities, watch for it. They go find the people and they share the gospel with those people. Preaching, teaching, one-on-one, -on -one, lots of different ways. But that's the method. It's the gospel. And that's what Christ uses to build His true church. So watch for that. Gospel communicated, disciples made, churches planted as an outflow of that, training up in the faith, and then the gospel going forth from those churches. So, that's just a little introduction to what to look for and expect. And we see them being sent out by the church in Antioch. We saw that last time that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's point number two. The gospel covers Cyprus. This is the first stop. This is phase one in the first missionary journey. Verses 4 and 5. Look back in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Phase one of the journey is Cyprus. Who's from Cyprus? Barnabas. This is where he's from. He knows the territory, right? Maybe that was part of the decision of to go to Cyprus first. 
But they're going to Cyprus with a purpose, and that's to make disciples. I mean, we can have all the gatherings we want to. If we're not making disciples, we're failing. Cyprus was an interesting place. It's a senatorial province with a governor or a proconsul, uh, but it had no Roman military presence because there was really no threat of them rebelling. There's really no danger of that. So it would under the under the governance of the Senate, they would appoint a proconsul or a governor, if you want to think that way, who would be on site there. But he's really not surrounded by a military because there's no de- there's no danger of them rebelling. This was the third largest island in the Mediterranean. There's a large Jewish presence, though there's a large Gentile presence as well, and a history of that. People from every nation coming to Cyprus. But that's, that's just a little. You, you can read more on Cyprus. But their method, you can see their method introduced here. as, And it's really, it's really interestingly short, except for the dealing with the, the magician. There's really, what we're kind of used to is seeing the gospel preached and all these people come to faith. And, and we really don't get a lot of that. I don't know what that means for the mission in Cyprus. I know, I'm, I'm sure, like the governor, there were people who were converted. But it's very brief in verses 4 and 5. But what we do see is their method. We do see their method in verses 4 and 5. And I said they go to where the people are and they share the gospel and disciples are made and the church is built. And so it says they're sent out by the Holy Spirit, verse 4. Notice the church sent them out, but it was the Holy Spirit superintending that process. So they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. They go down from Antioch to Seleucia, just a port city, and they sail over to Cyprus. And when they arrive at Salamis, they took a four-week vacation. Look at this. And, and, and listen, I'm saying Barnabas knows the island. Probably he knows, you know, they, they've sort of thought about this and prayed about this. It says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Remember, I read Romans 1, 16, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. You'll see this method as you walk through the missionary journeys. They'll go Jew first and then Gentiles. So they go to the synagogue of the Jews. What, what better place to go share the gospel than people who are steeped in the Old Testament? You have a confidence in the Word of God. You can go right to it and witness to them and show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they're hoped for. That Jesus is the Messiah expected. A lot of Messianic expectation in those days. Right? And so you can go right in and show the truth of. You know, all the Bible's about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. They, they would go in and show how Jesus is the Messiah that was predicted and it's proved by him being raised from the grave. Cool thing is next week, Corey's going to preach a text um, that you'll have an example of what their teaching looked like in the synagogue. There's a sermon sort of expanded upon in the text he's going to be looking at next week. So you get an example of that. But they're going into the synagogue. They're preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who has died for our sins and been raised from the grave, proving it's all true. So they arrived. They immediately went into the synagogues, and they're proclaiming the word of God with John to assist them. They find people. They preach the gospel. The gospel is the focus because the gospel is the power. It's just another, you see, they're, they're t- do you think they had no timidity? N- no fear? 
No trembling. We don't have to guess about that either, and I'll let you go read it. But if you go read 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said, and Corinth is in the second. It's not even in this missionary journey. And by the time he goes to Corinth, he said, I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. But I had determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. What's that? The gospel. So that your faith might be in the power of God and not in man. I didn't come with flowery words. I just came with the gospel. My confidence was in the gospel. Look what God did. Paul's timidity. Timothy's timidity. Barnabas's timidity. Barnabas's fear. The battle is overcome. Not by anything in them, but by confidence in Christ and His gospel. So they go forth sharing that gospel. And listen, anytime you share the gospel, there's going to be opposition. It might just be in you and your struggle. Sometimes it's outside of you. A lot of you can relate to coming to faith and then half your family thought you were crazy trying to talk you out of it. But look at secondly or thirdly here. The gospel conquers darkness. The gospel conquers resistance. Look, we've seen sort of a snapshot of their method. They, they're confident in the gospel. They're proclaiming the word in the synagogues. They're, they're going from synagogue to synagogue. And they will have run the race all the way. They've covered the island by the time we get to this point. And, and that's what verse 6 says. But the gospel conquers darkness. Look in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island. See, they were there a while visiting more than one Synagogue going to more than one place. When they had gone through the whole island. So the verses, verses 4 and 5 are short. This is quite a period of months that they've spent on this island traveling and preaching the gospel. It said, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. <laughs> Reminds me, you know, of Simon earlier in Acts. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now that word Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus. That's a very interesting name for a false prophet to run into. And really that's, you know, Yeshua, if they were speaking Hebrew. He says, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So this is a government official. He has people around him, many counselors around him, some of whom would be, and you see this commonly in, in years gone by that you'd have what they call wise men or, and some others who, like around Pharaoh, would resist the truth with what they would consider to be magic. So this is a man of some importance. He's close to the governor, who's a man of intelligence. And the governor has... Now watch this. This is cool. And he's governor, so he wants to know what's going on, but I think he had a real interest in the message that was being proclaimed. It says that uh, Sergius Paulus... The proconsul was a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. I would love that opportunity if the governor, especially the governor we have now, would call me and say, please come to the capital and share the gospel with me. Hallelujah, you want a savior, Mike, you want to go. go. Here we go. <laughs> the governor is summoning them in to hear the gospel. But there's a child of the devil there who's certainly not going to like this. And I don't have to guess about that either. That's what Paul called him. But he, this man is wanting to hear the word. He's summoning the gospel. See, it's really the gospel that was sent out. Paul and Barnabas are just the vessels. 
Christ is sending the gospel out, making disciples. He's the one making them through his spirit. So he wants to hear the word of God. Now watch this, judgment on darkness. It says, but Elimus the magician, that's the meaning of his name. And Elimus, you know, he's somebody great and he's claiming to be somebody great. Opposed them. Literally was opposing them. I mean, everything they say, he's, he's popping up with some sort of objection and disagreement. And he's just all kind of in the way. As they're trying to just be faithful to what Sergius Paulus wanted and give him the same word of God they're, t- they're giving to the rest of the churches. But it says he was opposing them and seeking. Now look at this. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's stepping between Jesus and a chosen one. He's stepping in the middle. The evil one's son is trying to disrupt the gospel. And I say, if you're going to be faithful with the gospel, you're going to have to walk through difficulty. You're going to have to walk through opposition. You're going to have to see Christ as sufficient. But this man, this magician, this man who's used to having eyes on him and all about him and doing his thing and impressing people, being a high and uh, haughty counselor is kind of being pushed to the side as Paul and Barnabas come in with a bigger hero, Jesus, and proclaiming him to the governor. And, and Mr. Magician here is probably seeing the, go- this, the governor's listening. He's dialing into this. I, gotta, I, gotta, I have to do something. Now watch this. Judgment over darkness. Paul, who was called... Saul, who was called Paul, hey, we're introduced to his Greek name that he will use from here on out as his mission is to the Gentiles, his Roman name, that he'll become known as Paul. Same guy, Saul, Hebrew name, Paul, Roman name. It says, watch this. Now Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, don't, don't forget, he's a Jewish false prophet. So maybe they're saying one thing from the Scriptures and he's grabbing a verse out of context like the devil did with Jesus and trying to put a whole different twist on it. He's trying to make it crooked. He's trying to deceive. Paul diagnoses him as not a son of Jesus, his name, but a son of the devil. He calls him an enemy of all righteousness. He's a deceitful man and he's a villain. One who seeks to take advantage of others and take from others through crooked means. Really for him, just, just, you know, it's all about him. And somebody's getting in the way of that. And he's stepping up to it. He's resisting the gospel. Therefore, he's resisting Jesus. And that's going to have a consequence, but not as severe a consequence as it could have been. Look at this. It says, and after Paul proclaims who he is, like Peter did before, another magician he ran into. He says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist of darkness fell about him and he went about seeking people to lead him by a hand. That would be a mighty convenient witnessing tool, wouldn't it? The people are resisting you trying to witness and somebody's giving you grief. Darkness. 
I've had times when I'd, I'd misuse it if I had it, I'm sure. <laughs> Paul knows what this is like. Remember? Saul's on his way to destroy the church in Damascus and Jesus meets him on the road. Knocks him off his high mule and he has to be led away by the hand because he's blinded in temporary judgment for his opposition to Christ and his people in the gospel. Same thing here. I wish we had an, we knew what happened to this guy later. We know. Maybe he was converted. We can hope so. But darkness fell upon him. Blind, none of his, none of his powers of prediction came forward. He didn't see that coming. Dion Warwick Psychic Friends Network, you remember that kind of stuff? <laughs> Old black preacher said, there ain't no power in it. There ain't no power in it. He said the, the whole thing went bankrupt. Neither one of them saw it coming. <laughs> they were supposed to be telling the future. Darkness goes on him. And this darkness is a judgment, yes. It's a temporary one. It's, it's not permanent. But it pictures the judgment that's coming. Cast into outer darkness. Separation from the Lord. Suffering forever. Those who reject the gospel. And it also pictures the way we're born. Blind spiritually. Unable to see. Dead in our trespasses and bondage to sin. Why? Because we loved it. We would not turn to the Lord. But God blinds him for a season in a temporary judgment because of his resistance to the gospel. And it does picture... Uh, spiritual blindness, if you will. I mean, I'll give you one verse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That should scare you if you're not believing in Christ this morning. And not because you're smart. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ. And this man was blind. He didn't see the light of the glory of Christ. So in confirmation with his nature, he got a temporary judgment that lined up perfect physical blindness. And the gospel wins. Look at verse 12. See, the judgment miracle simply removes the distraction. So that this man could hear the word. It said, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. Now watch this. For he was astonished at the miracle. The teaching of the Lord. See, the judgment removes the distraction. The, the miracle doesn't create faith. Miracles don't create faith. Signs don't create faith. Lazarus was raised from the dead and they wanted to kill him too afterwards. If you're not believing in Jesus, it's not a miracle you need. It's the gospel you need. And the spirit to apply that gospel and give you life so that you turn and trust in Jesus. 
See, the judgment miracle removes the distraction. He wanders off. No more to say. But it's the Gospel that's the power of God. And it says this, the pro-council believed, comma, you know, this had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Literally, that genitive translated probably best, the teaching about the Lord. The Gospel is about the Lord, Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised from the grave. And we're saved through trusting in Him. And listen, that Gospel took the governor's breath away. The word that this word comes from is talking about the last breath before we die. But used in this sense, it literally is God's grace, God's majesty, God's salvation in Jesus took His breath away. Because the Spirit was at work through that gospel, effectually calling him to faith in Jesus. He heard the gospel and he owned the fact that Christ took what he deserved. Wow. Have you ever, are you astonished at that? You deserve wrath, hell, condemnation forever. Christ took that. If you're trusting in him, you can know that for you. If you reject him, you face that straight up. He was his breath was taken away by the teaching about Christ, by the gospel. And he turned and trusted in Jesus. Darkness judged and overcome. Disciple made victory, not for Paul and Barnabas primarily, but for Jesus, the king, bringing another child to Himself. I mentioned John 3.16. I might as well quote it. For God so loved the world. Or literally, this is how he, in this manner, he loved the world. This is how he loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever trusts in him might not perish but have everlasting life. I'm not asking you if you have, have you ever walked the aisle and shook a preacher's hand and repeated a prayer. I'm asking you, are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? Is your hope for salvation Christ and Christ alone? Have you received the free gift of Christ who is our salvation, who has paid for our sins, who gives us his righteousness all through faith in him so that we are accepted in the beloved, made children of God and being conformed into his image. The governor was astonished because the spirit was at work, effectually calling him to faith through the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel that Paul and Barnabas had confidence in as the power of God for salvation. Just a few thoughts about this before we, we end. But again, I repeat, freedom to witness comes through embracing the gospel as the power of God for our salvation. This will set you free if you'll own it. The power's in the gospel, not you. Amen. I mean, let the blind, illiterate lady help you. Let it set you free. You can't mess it up. No way you mess it up is not share the gospel. In the midst of rambling, if you get the gospel out, success. Rather than being very flowery and high, well-spoken and leaving it out. Failure. 
The power's in the gospel, not us. Jesus said to the disciples in Acts 1.8, He said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Through faith in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was a transitional time, but by the time we get to Ephesians, we see that. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Read Romans 8, other places. Not the sermon today. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, we've seen that. In Judea, we've seen that. Samaria, we've seen that. And now we're going out to the ends of the earth and that job is not finished. The Holy Spirit is going to make witnesses of you. Witnesses to what? The Gospel. See, the Gospel is the scalpel. The, the surgeon is the Holy Spirit. You're just the hand that delivers what He is directing, His Gospel. See, it's the Spirit that cuts us open with the Gospel that transplants our heart so that we're convicted of our sin and turn to Christ for salvation. You're simply the hand that surgeon uses to grasp and apply the scalpel. Maybe a weak illustration, but I'm trying to get you to see it's not you. It'll set you free. You'll never do it just right. But the gospel is such a simple message that the smallest child in here can understand it and embrace it. Or, or the ambassador picture that Paul uses. You're simply the ambassador. The ambassador doesn't make up his own message. He just delivers the king's message. And the king's will is done. And in this instance, it's salvation. I mean, do you see the freedom? The power's not in me. I don't have to answer all their questions. I don't have to wear the same clothes they wear. I mean, I, I'm not making fun. I'm just saying you don't have to be just like somebody to reach them. I mean, we try to be as much as we can without violating the law of Christ to reach people. But it's not me. It's not my life. It's not my answers. Those of you who like to study apologetics, it's not your apologetic. It's the gospel. This simply is a platform for you to get the gospel out. If you answer every question and never share the gospel, you hate miserably. It's his power. It's his message and it's his results. So that sets me free. As long as I'm communicating the gospel, which is Christ. We'll say that again. The good news. Christ. Now we have to know the bad news for it to make sense. But the gospel is Christ. Christ died for us. Christ was buried for us. Christ was raised for us. Christ is reigning for us. He's coming again. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the grave. And in salvation is through faith in him. Read the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. That's the gospel. And that's the power because I promise you, if somebody is resisting the gospel and they're asking you all sorts of questions, you can answer every question they have and it just ends in a never-ending story of more questions. Sanctify Christ in your heart and call them to repentance and faith and share the gospel with them. And if you do that, you've been successful, even if you haven't answered their questions. And listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you don't need all your questions answered to come to Jesus. What you need to do is repent of your sin and trust God's Son before it's too late. 
He may never answer all your questions. Read Job. Job didn't get all his questions answered. He just got who, not what, not why. He got who. God told him who he was, and that was enough. Job put his hand over his mouth. The law is given to shut our mouths so that we see we're sinful and we need a Savior and we turn to Christ and receive Him. So it sets me free by embracing the gospel as the power and not me. And then embracing the gospel as the power, love motivates me to witness. Love for the King first. Love for Jesus who died for me. Love should be my response. And he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That wasn't a scout. Statement of fact. Did you know the Bible defines love of God as joyfully obeying him? See, we look at feelings. Oh, do I feel like I love God? We really don't. In one sense, it doesn't matter how you feel, but in one sense it does. Because if you can feel it how you want to, if you're not joyfully obeying God, you don't love him. John said that. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome because we love him and our hearts are tuned to them. Now, we're not perfect in it, okay? But it, to the extent that I love him and I keep his commandments and he's commanded us to go and make disciples and so love is what motivates my witness and that love is in response to his grace, not his law. Law shows me my problem. I turn to Christ. Christ forgives me, clothes me in his righteousness and produces love in me. So love for the king first who saved you and loved you first. You didn't love him first. And second, love for neighbor in their lost condition. Man, we don't love our neighbor if we won't tell them about Jesus. Do we? There's grace for this. There's forgiveness for this. And I'm not here to beat you down. It's just to propel you out. Propel me out of ourselves. Has the gospel taken your breath away? Are you astonished that God would sacrifice his son to save you? That he would freely and fully give Christ to you through faith? Has he given you faith? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? We sing Amazing Grace. We sang it last week. Was it last week? Yeah. yeah, we sort of mixed it up between the old song and the new song, but we sang it. John Newton says, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And when he saw, he turned, and he became a witness. He became a pastor. He became a hymn writer. Praise God. Therefore, he still witnesses. Saul or Paul had certainly experienced that amazing grace. And he was going forth sharing the grace that was his in Christ. And therefore his fear was overcome. I've already, I, I don't need to, I quoted this a while ago here. But it's in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, just verse 3. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. But love for God, astonishment at his gospel, love for his neighbor, the spirit at work in him caused him to step over his fear and intimidation to get that message of good news those who needed to hear it and Sergius Paulus and I'm convinced others on Cyprus even though we're not told were brought to faith see freedom to witness comes through embracing the gospel as the power of God the gospel or the good news about the one who was sent to save us God sent his son 
Jesus came willingly and joyfully into our darkness under his own law to perfectly fulfill all righteousness for us by keeping that law out of love for the Father in thought, word, and deed. Second Adam, succeeding where the first Adam in Israel and you and I had failed, he was only righteous and deserved only blessing. But being sent to save us, he had to answer for our sins. So he took our sin upon himself and he died and suffered the horrible physical agony. But that was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering he endured. The eternal hell for us he endured and could endure because he was God and man. So that on that cross before he passed, he could say, it's his finished." Paid in full. Into the grave, under the power of death for a time. Third day, rose victorious. Met with the disciples. Appeared to over 500 at once. Ascended visibly into heaven and is coming again someday. The resurrection proves it's all true. Jesus was sent for us. Then, therefore, he sends us. And we see Paul and Barnabas as sent ones going to Cyprus and beyond. Telling them the good news of this risen Savior. Back to my opening illustration. At least I don't think so, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I don't think any of us are blind or illiterate. But we do have the same gospel. We do have the same power. Our confidence is to be in God and His gospel. And may His grace and confidence in the power of His gospel propel us out with this good news. Because we too are sent out with power. Trust in Him and talk of Him and watch what He does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for coming to save us. Thank You for having a church. Thank You for Your church enduring all the way down to this day and age so that we could hear Your gospel, the good news of your truth that you have lived for us. You have died to pay the penalty of our sins. And you have been raised from the grave proving it's all true. That you give salvation as a free gift to those who by your grace turn and trust in you. Make us passionate sent ones who rely upon the power of the gospel. Not in our own selves. Who get over our fear and timidity and weakness. And like Paul and Barnabas and the lady in Africa and countless others are willing to take this glorious good news to those around us who don't know you. Lord, save and sanctify your people. Renew and change our hearts. Fill us with love for you because of your grace. Love for one another like Christ and love for our neighbor who is lost. Knowing that we have the power of God in your gospel for their salvation. Lord, let us not sin with your sovereignty and our knowledge of your sovereignty and let, let us not wash away our responsibility with it. But may your sovereignty and your power give us confidence that you are with us and for us and will use us to accomplish your purpose. We praise you this morning and we look to you in faith and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.